for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. So grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning. This morning we're going to look at verses 13 down through verse 30. Last week we looked at a passage that had a lot of parallels for us. This was the passage of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And we looked at a lot of parallels between Jesus' temptation and Adam's temptation. And we saw a lot of contrast there. We saw Adam who was tempted living in a perfect world with every food at his disposal, yet he was tempted with one fruit that he couldn't have. And he, being tempted once, failed. And living in a fallen world, his failure ushered in the fallenness, the depravity of the whole world. And we compare that to Jesus, who was tempted in a completely fallen world, and he wasn't tempted in a lush garden, so to speak. He was tempted in a desolate wilderness, which he had been fasting for 40 days, and uh, the, the amount of hunger would have been indescribable, and yet he was tempted with, with bread and so many other things he was tempted with by Satan himself, and where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So we saw a lot of parallels there. We also saw parallels between Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and Israel's temptation in the wilderness. Jesus, of course, succeeded in all of the temptations that the enemy threw at him. Israel and their temptations in the wilderness wanderings failed and failed and failed over and over again as they failed to believe, they failed to trust, they failed to to be faithful in their wilderness testings. Jesus succeeded where all of that failed. So we saw a lot of parallels, we saw a lot of contrast there. 
Today we move on to the next passage, which also has some parallels for us. This is the passage of uh, Jesus's initiation, so to speak, his beginning of his adult ministry. So let's begin just by reading the passage together in Luke chapter 4, beginning from verse 14. Well, let's back up and grab verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's? Son, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three and three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So in this passage, Luke sets the stage for the next four or five chapters. He puts Jesus in Galilee, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to be in Galilee from chapter 4, verse 14, down through chapter 9, verse 50, with one small exception, the last verse in chapter 4, verse 44. Just as a side note, Luke mentions that he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So... Luke puts Jesus in Galilee to stay for the next five chapters or so. And uh, we, we realize as we're thinking through this that, you know, none of the gospel accounts are chronological. All four gospels will mix and match the events of Jesus's life and move them around to, to fit certain themes that they're speaking of. None of the gospels has a strictly chronological telling of Jesus's life, but Luke is the one who is least chronological because during this period of Jesus's life he was he was not first of all he didn't after his baptism as or I'm sorry after his temptation it would seem as what Luke says is that he goes from, straight from there to Galilee Jesus was tempted in Judea and it would seem that Luke says that he goes from there to Galilee and then stays in Galilee for quite some time but he didn't in your mind recall the fact that 
Jesus is, the land where Jesus is can be thought of in, in two sections, in the northern section of Galilee and the southern section of Judea. And the truth is that Jesus was back and forth between those sections repeatedly. If you were to read any of the gospel accounts and try to, in your mind, formulate a precise timeline of where Jesus was, when he, and where he went, and when he traveled, then you will drive yourself crazy. Because he does do a lot of traveling, and because none of the gospel writers give a chronological history of Jesus' life, it can be a nightmare to try to figure out where he goes when. But we do know that what he doesn't do is go to Galilee and stay in Galilee until Luke chapter 9. Because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus turns his head, turns his face to Jerusalem. And from that point on, it's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So Luke would have us to think, well, it's divided up neatly between Galilee and, and Judea, but that's not actually the case. John's gospel is a little bit more chronological. And during this period of time, John has Jesus... First of all, he, he is baptized by John, and, and after the baptism, John recognizes him as, as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus begins to collect disciples. He's still in Judea. He begins to collect disciples, Simon, John, of course, uh, Philip, Nathaniel. And then he goes to Galilee for the first miracle, the wedding at Cana. And then he comes back, according to John, he comes back to Judea, and then he cleanses the temple and he has a conversation with Nicodemus and all those things. And, and really, on up to chapter 5, he stays down in Judea. So that would be, I think, a little bit more of a chronological history of what Jesus is doing at this time. However, Luke puts Jesus in Galilee, and I think he puts him there for a reason. We'll talk about that as, uh, as we go on just a little bit further. So let's begin from verse 14, and we'll just look at this step by step. From verse 14... Luke says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, maybe you're already picking up on this connection that Luke is making between Spirit and power. Power and Spirit. Because over and over again, the two of those things are right there together with each other. If, if we were to flip back to chapter 1, verse 17, this all begins with John the baptizer. From chapter 1, verse 17, speaking of John the baptizer, he will go before Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. And from there, Luke just builds on that theme of power and spirit connected together, especially when you get to Luke's second book, Acts. In Acts, power and spirit are almost synonymous with one another. So here comes Jesus filled with the power, returning in the power of the spirit to Galilee. By the way, that's the same identical power that is available to all who are in Christ today. Jesus was not endowed with any special power of the Spirit that is not available to followers of Christ today. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now we, we mentioned that from this point on, Jesus is uh, Luke's going to picture Jesus being in, in Galilee. Um, now let's talk for just a quick moment about perhaps why it is that Luke begins Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee. And I think that it would help us to understand just a little bit about the context of where Jesus is. Galilee is can be thought of as the northern portion of Israel, and the southern portion would be called Judea. Now, if we go back in time, all the way back to when Israel was a united kingdom, 
we know that there were three kings that ruled Israel while it was united, Saul, David, and Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's rule, Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the throne. And you remember the story of Rehoboam, perhaps the biggest idiot in the history of Israel's kings. He, within a few days, broke the kingdom into two because he was so arrogant as to say that he would not listen to any of the counsel from his father's counselors. He cleaned house. He got all young counselors that weren't part of his father's kingdom, and he wouldn't listen to the older guys. And the younger guys told Rehoboam, if you want this country to be strong, then all this complaining that they're doing about taxes and burdens on the people, you need to ratchet that up. The people aren't paying enough taxes. The people aren't burdened enough. That's what you need to do, Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam listened to them, and he told the people, if, if you think the things were hard under my dad, then you just hang on. And that went over about like you think it would, it would go over. The kingdom within a few days was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Judea, uh, Judah. So the two tribes, Judah and the tribe of, of Levi, were separated from the ten northern tribes that became the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the history of, Jude, of Judah is a history of a mix of good kings and bad kings, a mixture of evil and righteousness, a mixture of faithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to God. All of that culminated, of course, with the Babylonian conquest and the exile of the southern kingdom. So if that's the history of the southern kingdom, the history of the northern kingdom during the same period of time is quite different. If Judah was a mix of good and bad, Israel was all bad. All evil kings, just a record of faithlessness, a record of idolatry in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, God sent the nation of Assyria to conquer them uh, way before the southern kingdom was conquered and, and exiled. So that was the context of the northern kingdom. And then even after the Assyrian conquest, as, as the land has, has begun to be repopulated by God's people, even then it, was, it remained a mixture of idolatry. It remained just a place where faithfulness to God never seemed to take root. Now, all of that is bred into the culture of Galilee. And so in Jesus' day, when one would think of Galilee, they would think of a place that is more progressive-minded, more liberal-minded, less, less faithfulness to the statutes of God. It would be, maybe, maybe a fair comparison could be made to the southeastern Bible Belt and the northeastern U.S. The, the northeastern United States is typically more... Uh, progressive-minded when it comes to matters of faith and religious matters. And, um, and, and certainly the Christian faith in the Northeast United States is, is at a different place than it is in the Southeast. So maybe that's a fair comparison between Judea and Galilee. So Jesus goes to Galilee and he's ministering there in the context of a long history of faithlessness to God. Now, 
Galilee is going to be an area that is more populated by Gentiles than Judea. Judea, that's where Jerusalem is. That's where the, the, the foundations of Judaism are. And so that's much more orthodox. Galilee, much more of a mixture. Greeks, uh, non-believing, non-monotheistic uh, non uh, faiths exist there. And so that's the context that Jesus goes to, the context of Galilee. Now, Jesus returned, verse 14, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went, went uh, I'm sorry, a report about him went out through the surrounding country. Now, I would ask a report about what? Because if you're reading Luke chronologically, he hasn't done anything yet. He's been baptized, and there was a voice from heaven, and then there's the temptation, which was a sort of a private matter, but a report about what? Again, Luke is not giving us chronological details here. The report that goes out is a report about the things that Jesus did in Judea, the, the, perhaps the miracle in Cana, the teachings of Jesus that are radically changing people's lives. The, Jesus has already been doing those things, but Luke, again, he's skipping around and organizing his, his account in a thematic, thematic way. Then verse 15, and Jesus, he taught in their synagogues. Remember, Luke is a Gentile and he's writing to a Gentile. So you see how he puts it. He taught in their synagogues. Not He, he wouldn't say our synagogues because Luke is not a Jew. And Theophilus is not a Jew. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now one thing that's always interesting to me is to compare the different gospel writers and their opinion of the crowds. I've always found that fascinating how each gospel writer will portray the same group of people differently. And that group of people is just the generic crowds that were there when Jesus would perform his miracles, when he would give his teaching. They were there when the 5,000 was fed and so on and so forth. The different gospel writers have a different take on them. And it's interesting to see what that take is. Mark, for example, has an extremely negative view of the crowds. In Mark's gospel, the crowds are always a hindrance to Jesus. They're always in his way. He's always wanting to minister to somebody, and the crowds hinder him from doing that. Or the crowds won't let him pray. Or Luke portrays all of that as though the crowds are not a good thing to Jesus. Matthew is, is a bit more positive towards the crowds. John is a mixture John always describes the crowds as people that were intrigued and listening and being changed by Jesus' teaching, but the crowds were always intermixed with Pharisees, the hated Pharisees that were always antagonistic towards Jesus. So John always paints it as a, as a mixture of both good and bad. But Luke views the crowds as a very positive thing. Jesus was glorified by all. And Luke will, will paint that picture for us of, of a Messiah who's teaching the crowds are listening and responding well to Jesus. So verse 16, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now you can't preach through this passage and not pause for at least a moment on verse 16. And I think that probably... Most of you could also preach verse 16. Because it's hard to miss, isn't it? As was his custom, 
he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. <laughs> if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was compelled to be with God's people when they gathered to worship, then why do we consider it to be so optional? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm never going to advocate any type of legalistic view of the gathering of God's people. That if the, you know, if the church doors are open, you have to be here. That if, if you know anything about um, my view of all that, then you know that's, that's not what I'm advocating. But at the same time, I just have always found it so frustrating how God's people will consider the gathering together of, of corporate worship to be something that is not number one, two, or three, or four on the list. When Jesus Himself considered it so important. Now, I, I realize that the, the ones I'm saying this to are the ones that are here in God's house. And as you probably heard me say before, the only people I can preach to are the ones who come. I can't preach to people that aren't here. But at the same time, I find it so frustrating that God's people would consider the gathering together for worship to be something that, that we can do occasionally when Jesus Himself made it His habit, made it His custom. So uh, he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he's going to quote from the scroll. Now, Luke tells us that to let us know that Jesus chooses this passage. The custom of the day was that the synagogue didn't have a pastor, so to speak. It didn't have a regular teacher or, or preacher or speaker. There was a leader of the synagogue. You may remember Jairus was a leader of the synagogue, but that wasn't the teacher of the synagogue. The leader of the synagogue was like the organizer. They looked after the physical building. They looked after the business matters of the synagogue, the logistical matters of the synagogue, but the teaching was done by different rabbis in the community. And the custom was that if there was ever a visiting rabbi, he was automatically given the floor. So sort of the reverse of today when, when uh, you know, a pastor or a preacher goes on vacation somewhere and you visit a church and, you know, you, you kind of, they don't want to, they, they just want to be there. They don't want to preach. The opposite was the case in Jesus' day. If you were a traveling rabbi or a visiting rabbi, then you were given the floor to teach or preach. So this is the case with Jesus. He's from Nazareth, but he's been away. So he's back here in Nazareth and they give him the floor and they hand him the, the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds this particular place um, to read from. Now, before we look at the quote from Isaiah, let's, let's just make a couple of comments about the context of what Isaiah says. Isaiah writes what he writes to a people who are about to be exiled. He writes to people who are living in Jerusalem and Judea prior to the Babylonian conquering of Jerusalem. They will be exiled, and that exile will last for 70 years. And what God is saying to them is, not only is this exile coming, but I will also deliver you from it. it will, there will be a period of time, a period of bondage, 
but that will come to an end and I will deliver you from this. And this is what Isaiah goes on to say. So here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom and liberty to the captives, etc., etc. So let's look at this sentence by sentence. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. We, we can't help there but think back to chapter 3. The dove coming out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jesus and anoints Him, but He has anointed me. Jesus is the Lord's anointed to speak this message. Which, by the way, the Spirit of the Lord, if you are in Christ, anoints you to speak the very same message. There's no, there's no substantial difference between the message Jesus was speaking here in this context and the message that we are also anointed to speak. So the Spirit anoints Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news, that's the gospel. Now, Luke says it's proclaimed to the poor. In Luke's gospel, the poor are a very prominent aspect of of what Luke has to say. And when Luke speaks of the poor, he is speaking not only of a person's economic position, but he's also speaking of a person's spiritual condition. You know, like, Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So Luke is speaking of, uh, about a group of people who are financially destitute, but also spiritually destitute as well. So good news to the poor. That good news is not you won the lottery. That good news is he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, liberty or freedom to the captives. In Luke's gospel, freedom always means forgiveness of sin. Freedom from the bondage of sin. So he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. There's one instance in Luke 18 where Jesus is going to literally heal a blind man, but recovering of sight to the blind, more so than physical sight, means spiritual sight. The spiritually blind are enabled to see the truth of God. And to set at liberty, same word again, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. So the time of the favor of God is upon them. In a real way, God has always favored His creation. In a real way, all people created in the image of God have always been the recipients of God's favor. However, Jesus, by quoting this scripture, we're going to see what he's declaring is now things are different. Now this is beginning a time of special favor in the sense that Messiah is here. Forgiveness of sin will be experienced in a whole new way. And this is the beginning of a time of special favor from the Lord. And then verse 20, he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That was the custom in that day when you began to teach, you would sit, not stand. And so uh, he sits down to teach and all the eye, the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. The way Luke writes that, the way he words it, he, the word or, or the phrase, all the eyes is, is especially emphatic. So if you were to underline that, that would be exactly how Luke writes it. Every eye, every eye was glued upon him. And then verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now the word today is also highly emphatic. So in other words, you could circle that word. Here's what Jesus says. 
today, on this day, that scripture has been fulfilled. Now that doesn't mean this actual day, the 24-hour day that Jesus says this. That means that this period in history, this has now been fulfilled in your hearing. So what did Jesus mean? It seems as though that whatever Jesus means, which by the way, when Jesus says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, that's not to be understood as his whole sermon. That was the synopsis. That was the summary statement of it all. But it seems to be that whatever Jesus said is misunderstood by the people that he said it to. Because look at their reaction. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. In other words, the people understood that what Jesus was saying was this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The scripture that says that God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, liberty to those who are oppressed. In other words, your ancestors used to be captives. They were captives in Assyria. They were captives in Babylon. However, God has now brought freedom to the captives and you are now experiencing the time of favor from God because He has now freed the captives from their bondage. And so they, they take that to be Jesus' meaning, that Jesus is saying, I'm a messenger from God to proclaim to you His goodness upon you, His favor upon you, as evidenced by your freedom from captivity. Now, there's still this matter of the Romans that rule over Israel, and yeah, they, they weren't exactly free, but they weren't, they weren't in bondage. They weren't enslaved. They basically did what they wanted to do. So by comparison, they, they understand Jesus to mean, I'm proclaiming to you God's favor upon you. And then they said, verse 22, is this not Joseph's son? You know, bless his heart. What a good little message he just preached. You know, we, just, uh, we just love this uplifting message that you brought. You reminded us of God's favor upon us. So just uh, uh, we want to take you out to lunch. And then verse 23, here's where we realize that they have totally misunderstood Jesus. Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So first of all, what has he done in Capernaum? Again, Luke is not chronological here. So the next passage in chapter 4 is going to be about what he does in Capernaum. But Jesus has already done miraculous things and uh, he's already taught in Capernaum and people's lives have been changed. And so they've heard about that. And so what Jesus responds to them is they say, they, they marvel at the gracious words and they say, isn't this Joseph's son? He speaks so well. And Jesus, it's almost like he turns on them. And he says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And you're going to say what I did in Capernaum. Why don't you do it here? So first of all, remember that Jesus knows their hearts. You know, all the times in Scripture when, when Jesus knows the thoughts of the person he's talking to, or he knows the heart of the one he's speaking to. So their voices, their mouth is saying, Amen, preach it, brother. But their hearts are saying, uh, I don't, 
in this Joseph's kid, I don't, you know, I've heard, we've been hearing things about what he's saying and what he's doing, and he needs to do that here. He needs to show us for us to believe this, right? That's what their heart is saying. Jesus, of course, knows their heart. So he says to them, doubtless you'll say this proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, you have healed people elsewhere. You have performed miracles elsewhere. Physician, heal yourself. Do it here. You're from Nazareth. We're your hometown people. If you're going to heal sick people in Capernaum, you need to heal sick people here because we are your people. You grew up in this village. We, we are your neighbors. Show us that these things that we're hearing about you are true. And all wouldn't it be nice if, if some of our sick neighbors got healed as well. And then verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now listen to what Jesus says to him. Verse 25, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And secondly, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. So they go from, bless his heart, Joseph's boy sure has grown up to do us proud, to now they want to murder him. So Jesus has pinpointed their heart, and he's exposed something in their heart that their mouth was unwilling to say, but their heart held a great animosity towards this man who would claim to do these things in other places and, and yet come to his hometown and not be doing them here. And they're filled with wrath. So what does Jesus say to them that angers them so much? Jesus says, first of all, number one, you're not the only people that God loves and cares for. Number two, you don't set the priorities of God. Number three, God doesn't perform tricks on your demand just to satisfy your curiosity. So the day of the Lord's favor, the time of the Lord's favor, Jesus says to them, um, here's a news flash for you. God favors people more than just yourself. You are not the only recipient of God's love. You are not the only one that God chooses to grace with His healing powers, with His healing miracles, with His teaching. You're not the only one. So, have you ever, have you ever thought of the things that God would choose to do for people and and to to uh, uh, to people, the things that God would choose to do. Have you ever thought, well, God needs to do this here. God needs to do this right here for us. And have you ever thought that in order for God's power to be real to you, that it needs to be right here in your life? Have you ever thought that when people start talking about 
mission work overseas, telling people in, in countries in Africa and, and China and Southeast Asia, telling people about the gospel, collecting up money and funding missionaries to go and tell people on the other side of the globe. Have you ever thought, you know, we got a lot of lost people here. We need to start here. Or when people start talking about mercy ministries and feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and building homes for the homeless and, 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 and people are talking about doing all this in Africa. And have you ever thought, we got a lot of hurting people here. We need to start right here first. That's exactly what's going through the minds and the hearts of these people in Nazareth. Prophet boy, Joseph's son, you, you're going to go all over Israel healing other people? You need to start right here. This is your hometown. And if you're going to have all these healing miracles take place, well, that's fine after you've healed all the sick here. We sort of have this mindset sometimes that the grace of God needs to start right here with us. And then once our cup is full, then it can overflow to people that live on the other side of the globe or, or people that live on the other side of the country. But it needs to start right here at home with us. And that type of thinking is surprisingly prevalent among God's people that when we're going to do the work of the kingdom, we start right here. And I've often heard people talk about Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus commands to, to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And they say, well, that, that's... Jesus is talking about salvation there. He's talking about the spread of the gospel. He's not talking about the same context that He's talking about here. In fact, what Jesus illustrates here to the people is, they say, well, or they don't say this out loud, but they're thinking in their hearts, you're going to heal people down in Jerusalem? Why don't you heal people right here at home? And Jesus' illustration for them is two. He says, you know what? There was no shortage of widows in Elijah's time. There was no shortage of sick people in, Elijah, in Elisha's time. Right here in Israel. And what does God do? He sends His prophet to the Gentiles. And He, and he performs His grace there for them. And so I think that's what Jesus is attacking He's attacking that centristic attitude in their heart, maybe ethnocentristic, maybe regional centristic, where this right here, Nazareth, is the most important thing. He's attacking that and saying the grace of God. First of all, God decides where His grace is spilled out. But the grace of God is for all people, of all ethnicities, of all nations, of all places. The grace of God is for all people. And how dare you try to prioritize God's grace to come to you first. My, my parents have an unfortunate story to tell about a church that they were part of for decades and decades that had gone a bad way for a long time. Well, what happened in this, this church was, was something that happens in a similar way in a lot of churches. What happened was it was a rural church and everybody that, that made up the church was middle class to lower middle class type incomes. And one man moved into the community and started going to church there. This man was not redeemed, not converted, but he was elderly and he was very wealthy. 
And late in life, he's, he's realizing his own mortality. He's realizing his own condition. Like a lot of people that are in his position, he's going to buy the grace of God. And so he becomes part of this church and he buys the church. He buys new pews. He buys new carpet. He buys new furniture. He gives the pastor a raise. He buys this. He, you know, he buys the church. And so he owns, after a period of time, he owns the church now. And keep in mind, he, he was not converted. And so, as time goes on, it so happens that there's this regular meeting, kind of like ours tomorrow night, in which they're, they're discussing where the resources of the church are going to go. And people are talking about funding overseas missions and overseas projects and that sort of thing. And he says... Not one dime of my money will leave this country. That's precisely, I think, the same heart that Jesus is attacking here. The heart that says, <coughs> we are first in line for God's grace. The Jesus, this the late, newest, latest, greatest prophet on the scene, he came from Nazareth. So, here is where he needs to start pouring out the grace of God. So Jesus attacks that and he attacks it with this passage from Isaiah. Now it's interesting that this is not the only place in Luke's Gospel where Jesus quotes from this same Scripture. If you were to flip ahead to chapter 7, chapter 7 beginning from verse 18, there's another place where Jesus, he doesn't quote this word from word, but it's clear that this is the passage of Scripture that he's speaking of. Here's what he says. From verse 18, the disciples of John reported these things to Jesus. And, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John's in prison now. John has been imprisoned by Herod. Remember, Luke, just after the baptism of Jesus, Luke says that John has been put in prison because he wants to get John's ministry done out of the way because he wants to focus on Jesus' ministry. But here in chapter 7 is when John is actually in prison. And he's hearing of Jesus and the things that Jesus is doing and the things that, that Jesus is teaching. And he sends some disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the Messiah that we are to look for? In verse 20, when the men sent by John had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were the blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So in other words, you, you, you see Isaiah's passage there. Not, again, not word for word, but you see clearly that's what Jesus is referring to. Lepers are cleansed, the, the sick are healed, the captives are set free. And then verse 23, Jesus says this enigmatic statement. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, why would Jesus end on that note? That these disciples of John have come to Jesus to say, John sent us to ask you, are you really the Messiah? They have they, the, the, the messengers themselves witness these miracles of Jesus. And Jesus says, go to him and tell John what you've seen. 
Precisely what Isaiah spoke of. Captives are set free. Lame are healed. Sick are healed. And blessed is the one who's not offended in me. Why would Jesus end on that note? Because what is John right now? He is a captive. And he is not set free. In fact, his head is going to be set free from his body. So blessed is the one who is not offended in me. In other words, blessed is the one who sees my grace fall upon others and is not offended that that same grace does not fall upon me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash gardenfellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.